Support for Recovery Talks, the podcast, and rockandrecovery.com provided by Ohio Means Jobs, Summit, and Medina Counties, recognizing that looking for a job can be tough, especially if you're also navigating a path to recovery. Ohio Means Jobs, Summit, and Medina Counties offer career coaching, support services, and training for in-demand careers. For more information, summitmedinaomj.org. In 2014, there were 656 unintentional drug overdoses in the age group of 25 to 34-year-olds. That's 656. By 2019, that number had exploded to 6,099 in the state of Ohio. 6,099 25 to 34-year-olds. Our next guest is going to talk about one of those numbers, one of those statistics. It was her daughter, a living breathing, loving, caring child. We're going to turn a number into a name. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. And I'm here with Athena Fleming. Athena, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, um, when I first heard about your story uh, from a mutual friend of ours, uh, I was just so touched. And then when we were able to speak on the phone, finally, I could sense from you how tender and how maybe fresh this still was for you. Um, this experience of losing your daughter, Alicia. And that's what we're here to talk about today. 2014, in Alicia's age group, there were about 656, maybe not even 700 um, in that age group that had passed from from substance use disorders. By 2019, that had ballooned to over 6,000 in the state of Ohio. So it was one of the leading demographics of our children that have lost their lives to these diseases. And your ability to come on this show today and talk about that, I just want to give you a great big bravo because it's not easy to do. And by doing that, you're helping people. And I want to thank you in advance for doing that. Well, I I appreciate you having me. I think what we're doing here is so very important. Um, I continue to support others. It helps me in my recovery as a parent dealing with a child that suffered from substance use disorder for several years. Um, I watched her struggle for over a decade and then finally lost her life. So it's important to me um, to give back to others as I remember how um, I went through the stages of the disease with her and um, had had to learn about it and had to educate myself because I felt myself, you know, not going down those same lines, but suffering from codependency with her and trying to help her through and trying to, to fix it and, you know, try to take away the consequences at first and, um, you know, to no avail because it's a, it's such a powerful, powerful, uh, disease and, um, really educating, um, and education overall is the most important thing for, uh, for parents or for family members to really understand this disease of the brain that it is. You know, your story is very, very similar to many that I hear. You start out as a caring, loving parent, and we try to deal with 
substance use disorder, mental health issues in the same way we would discipline our kids. Don't touch that stove. It's hot, you know, exactly. and it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't yeah. work. That way. So I guess the first question I want to, I want to ask you today is at what point in, in your process with Alicia, did you know that there was a problem? What was the first moment where you said, wait a minute, something's happening here? Well, like so many young adults, we, especially parents of uh, young ladies that are starting, um, you know, to go through um, puberty and whatnot, we always want to think that it's something else. Oh, she's just an adolescent going through, you know, um, uh, the, you know, becoming a woman and she's moody and she's crabby and she's short tempered and she's, you know, sassy. And so all those things were very apparent. And Alicia really always had a kind and loving heart. And we saw that demeanor change. And we were wondering what's going on. And then we saw the lack of motivation to, um, in high school, to be involved with things that she always had loved and couldn't figure out why. And, you know, then we started giving her um, options for counseling, which we did take. And nothing came out in the counseling to the fact that she possibly had a substance use disorder. And maybe at that time, it it wasn't even that yet. She was just a teenager that um, was insecure and, and quiet. But that wasn't even real apparent to me either, because she always was kind of vibrant and, f and full of life and, and all that. But we, we slowly started to, to see a change in her personality. And then that's what led us to, you know, counseling at school, having outside counselors come in. But that issue was never really brought up. She was very quiet about that. So she wasn't being totally honest then with her counselors because that was something obviously she wanted to hide. So we didn't find out for quite a while that she was, you know, smoking pot and, um, you know, uh, experimenting with alcohol. And then, of course, it, it led to other things from there. Was there a turning point where you said, wait a minute, this is something serious? Was there an event where you kind of looked at it differently? Like, you know what? This is just not regular stuff. There's something very different happening here. I remember it exactly. We knew that there was some some use, but we didn't know how severe the use is. We didn't know that the, the use had gone from um, pills and um, opioids to um, heroin use. And I do remember exactly when, when I found that out. Um, never even had suspected that she was going to a ball, a very prestigious marine ball with, um, with her boyfriend. And I'll never forget the, the next day, he called me and said, I need to tell you something. And um, totally blew my mind. And, um, you know, he, he found paraphernalia in her purse when she was in the restroom. She had made several trips to the restroom that evening at the ball. And he said something was off with her. And, you know, by looking at her, she was beautiful. I mean, dressed gorgeous for the evening and never would look at her and say, she's a heroin addict. I mean, totally did not fit any type of image that um, that people would think. And 
we confronted her and uh, that was that was rough. I mean, there was denial, there was everything, but you can't deny what someone found in your purse. You know, it was right then and there, but always, always, always denial was there. And I, I felt absolutely scared to death and I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. Like I said, we had been, you know, we were doing the counselor thing. I didn't have any support at that time. I was not involved in a, a parent a support group, which I, I have been now. And I, I want to, to plug those, um, so to speak, because it's so important to get, to get with a, a support group because it offers you references that you don't necessarily know that are out there when you're trying to deal with this yourself. Absolutely. Um, We're going to talk about that for sure. So yeah. uh, what, what kind of event was that for your family? Because obviously uh, when, when you have an illness, any sort of illness, um, it becomes a family issue. And so I was just wondering how it affected your family, because I think a lot of our listeners are wondering, you know, okay, I'm the parent here. It's my job. But how do I, you know, deal with the other siblings? Because I know as a parent, and we've discussed this too, there's a dynamic that goes on with all of our children. And as a parent, we want to make sure that I don't know if it's really the right way or if I'm using the right nomenclature, but we want to make sure that there's an equal amount of us spread around to everybody. And um, when there's a disproportionate amount of energy spent with a certain child, I, I know that it's difficult as a parent, but it's also from a from a, a sibling standpoint, it's like, you know, mom and dad just talk about this you know, this kid all the time. And I wish they weren't in trouble all the time, or I wish they weren't like the superstar. What was it like for your family dynamic when you discovered we got a problem? Our family dynamic was very typical to that. Alicia was my middle child. She had an overachiever superstar of a, of a, of a older sister. And she had a younger sister that was, that was beautiful and popular and and all that. Not that she wasn't, but she felt very much and had mentioned to me being like the middle child and not being aiming to live up and sandwiched Mm. in between these two. Right. I, as a parent, never felt like I um, favored any of my children. I thought that I spread the love quite evenly around, but I know that, that Alicia having issues from a young age and they getting built upon year after year after year and it worsening that we felt like, okay, she's got this, you know, the older one had this, she had the grades, she had this and that she, she's okay. And the younger one, you're, you're fine, right? You're, you're good. You're independent because you're the, you know, youngest child and you're watching all this going on. Never really realizing that I was, um, the younger one was in the house with me. The older one was just getting ready. She was going to college and and moving out on her own and the pressure that I put on those two, um, not knowingly at all, we became very disconnected as a family. Well, we're firemen as parents, right? We're putting out fires. This one's got to do this. Oh my gosh, this one's got to, and this one. And there's, there's, you know, sometimes crises of all different levels when we raise multiple right. kids. I have three boys right. also. And I know that sometimes I felt like a doggone fireman. Like which one yeah. gets the fire hose today? Excuse me. Exactly. And I didn't, 
I quite honestly, I didn't have fires to put out with the other two. I didn't. So all the focus is on that child that needs a little bit more help. She needs that emotional help. She needs that, you know, uh, financial support or whatever it may be. And again, being uneducated at that time, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. I had gone through a divorce after almost 25 years. So dad was out of the house. The older one was out of the house. The younger one's living with me. She becomes angry because all my time is about Alicia, 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 because she needed it, right? Not knowing that I was I was pushing everybody away because they felt insignificant at that point because all the focus was on, on Alicia. I justified it then. But I'm like, but guy, like, what do you want me to do? You know, like you, you're okay and you're okay. I like, I got to do this. I'm, you know, I'm mom. Didn't again for many, many years realizing, re- didn't realize how much pressure I had put on my older one to be my sounding board, because I was a single parent at that time, and I'd call her up crying and what should I do? And like, she was out of college, going to nursing school. She didn't need that on her plate. And, you know, the younger one was still in high school and she was trying to enjoy her final years in high school and had all this stress and turmoil and dysfunction, you know, in our household because she still lived with me and with Alicia. So um, it was very, very difficult for them. And we have come a very long way as a family. Once I decided to get educated, join a support group and start sharing with them what I knew that was my role in this um, and how I did uh, not treat them a certain way because it was unknowingly, but understanding now how they felt being, you know, in that household. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the time right before red lights started flashing and the, the, the event happened. We're speaking with Athena Fleming. Thank you so much for being on this this podcast with us. You're listening to Recovery Talks, the podcast. You can find us at recoverytalks.org. If you do find us there, please make sure you like and you share and you follow. And we'll be right back after this. The internet can be challenging to navigate, especially when it comes to podcasts. It can be a cacophony of noise, choices, and information. Some of that information can be legitimate and trustworthy. And some of it can be questionable or even downright synthetic. Who or what can be trusted? And the sheer amount of platforms, where in the world do I go to listen and to absorb information? For the person in recovery, sometimes getting the right advice or help can be the difference between shivering in darkness and stepping out into the light. Recoverytalks.org is a repository, an easy to find place where past episodes of Recovery Talks the podcast can be found. All of Mark's in-depth conversations, all the way back to season one, can be found here. Recoverytalks.org. Simple. Easy. Help. Welcome, everybody, back to Recovery Talks, the podcast. We're here with Athena Fleming. Athena's telling us the story of her lovely daughter, Alicia, who lost her battle with the disease of addiction on June 23rd, 2021. Athena, leading up to the time... Was there a difference? Did you notice that there was a difference in the behavior? Did you notice that? Did you sense that there was an escalation? What was happening to you and to the family when things were were getting close to to the difficult time? 
this happened over um, over a decade of years of use. So Alicia had been in many places, many treatment centers, many sober living homes. She left here. Um, let me go backwards a little bit. After we had discovered that she was using heroin, we immediately sought uh, treatment for her. She agreed to go. She was um, in Michigan for that, um, did very well at the treatment center, but then the hard thing was, no, you cannot come home. So I didn't allow her to come back to my home because I didn't want her to come back into the atmosphere that she was using in. And the best place was to go and stay in a sober living home outside of her home environment. So the professionals say, right? So um, I have to agree. How do you know? How do you know? I mean, as a you parent- You don't know. And that's the scariest know. part. You do you not know. know. And you you're, are you're just listening. pulling at straws. Right. You are saying, okay, I won't let her come home. She's done good, but now she has to go live in a sober living home and, and continue on that road um, to learn how to live and reintegrate back into society right. and hope right. um, still with restrictions and guidelines and peer support and meetings that she could slowly reintegrate. And that won't happen in a home atmosphere because we don't know how to do that. Because, you know, we have not been trained and nor, you know, again, that maternal instinct takes over where you want to help. You want to, um, you're enabling, but you don't know you're enabling. So I followed the advice of the treatment center that she was in and doing so well in to allow her to go to sober living or insist that she go to a sober living, but it, she could not do her outpatient therapy inside from the inside of my home. So that took her. Um, on a road down to Florida. She was in Florida for several years, probably about seven years. She had went from Florida to Texas and ended up back in Florida and things progressed. Um, they actually got worse. She got wrapped up into um, things down in Florida that uh, were easily hidden from mom, but we knew all along that things were accelerating. Um, she's very close to her sisters and my youngest daughter moved down to Florida so that she could um, move out of sober living and move in with someone that she knew was sober. And that that went from good to bad within a short period of time as well. So she um, wasn't living with her sister either. And again, went into another sober living and treatment center. And we rode that roller coaster for several years. She did end up asking to come home about two years ago because she knew it wasn't working down there and needed something different. And I immediately said, of course you can come home. And I said, but you won't be coming home to your home. You'll be coming home with my support and love for you unconditionally, but I'm going to hook you up with local recovery center here, local um, people that I had come to know through my family meetings that are going to be more than willing to help you out and get you on the right track with you know things. And that's what she did um, for the last, um, it would have been two years, but she died before um, that uh, two-year mark. So she did come home but she did not live in my home. She went a couple different places, a couple different uh, counties here in, in Ohio, um, ended up back in um, the Cleveland area and um, doing, doing okay, but always would relapse and end up in another, in another place. She could never get enough time under her belt to go out on her own. 
um, when she was out on her own and didn't have a set of rules and regulations, she would slip. And um, and that's what happened. She was in her final sober living home and re was released from there. And at that point, um, I had a very terminally ill father and she was released from the sober home and couldn't get into another sober home because she again had tested positive. So I had to put up my boundaries and say, um, since you test positive, you cannot come back to the house. I said, um, I'll support you. I'll take you to the next place. I'll do whatever it takes. You know that we love you, but I can't have you in my home. What I'm hearing is it's just so difficult to walk that fine line between wanting to care and wanting to love for someone that is in, you know, long-term recovery for a substance use disorder, but is not able on whatever level. And, and this is the difficult, sad part of our stories, those of us that are close to the communities, that it doesn't always work for everyone. It just doesn't. And it's such a tragedy to see it happen. I can only imagine the difficulties that you go to. And I, I can hear it in your in, in your voice and in your story about the difficult decisions you had to make over and over and over again. We do the best we can do. We are always trying to be parents in the best way we know how. And the hardest part is to, to watch your children hurt, it, it, to watch your children heading for that sharp corner of the table, right? And you know that there's just no way you can stop it. You just can't. And I, and I, I just want to applaud you for, again, coming to this, this podcast. We're talking with Athena Fleming, who's a mother of Alicia Fleming, who lost her battle with the disease of addiction in 2021. Through telling these stories, through listening through the pain of these stories, all of us, through sharing our story, help other people. And that's the point of why we're here, isn't it, Athena? That's why we're here. We're here to tell our stories too. And let's talk about you for a moment, if you don't mind me switching things a little bit. Forgiveness is a topic that I know that I, and I don't want to be autobiographical, but I look back often to my life and I see that person who I was and the decisions I made and the way I behaved, one of the things I struggle with the most is forgiveness. And I know I can't go back. I know I have to start now and change the ending. And trust me, I've got all those great slogans <laughs> and, and everything put up on every corner of my house and still inside of me. I always have this little fire of hurt that goes on for the things that I cannot undo. And the wondering in my life, why was it that this happened? Why did it happen? We set out to do the best things. Listen to me, if you'd have seen me when I was an eight-year-old little leaguer, the last thing I would have ever told you was, I want to grow up to be an alcoholic and an addict. When I'm, That was never my story. Never my story. And I'm sure People that- People need to understand that, Mark. I know they, they need do. to understand that our loved ones don't set out to be addicts. No, they don't. They don't purposely do things to hurt us. Right. They don't- Set out to manipulate, lie, and steal. Right. 
that's that's not their goal. Right. Um, we're dealing with something that is so, so strong and powerful that it takes over their brain in such a way. And it doesn't matter how you were raised, what morals you were raised with, what values were, those are all out the window when that drug of choice comes to comes to be in the forefront of their mind. And for people that may not understand that, I would strongly suggest um, doing a little bit of research online. And one that comes to mind right now is the work of Dr. Nicole Labor, who is from Northeast Ohio. And she has some incredible um, presentations online of the neuroscience of addiction. What is happening to the brain when the brain does not cooperate with the spirit of someone in recovery. And it is just like an illness. Listen, I'm a type two diabetic. You know what I mean? If I if I eat sugary foods all the time, I know what's gonna happen. You know, in the same way as I was a person in recovery and still a person in long-term recovery, I know what's gonna happen to me. But when I was in the early days of recovery, I couldn't make the right choice. I just couldn't seem to do it. One of the things we wanna share is that, you know, we're here really to talk about substance abuse and mental health issues, because oftentimes those two go together. They really do. Um, one, being healed and, and helped will often expose the other one. And it's a very difficult, slippery slope. You know, and maybe you're not sure. Maybe you might think you have it. Maybe you're you know, getting ready to make a decision about it, or you're already there, or maybe you're trying again. Anyway, it's people like Athena who come on shows like this that really support and move forward the movement of people in recovery. So I can feel through your pain that you had to do a lot of of moving through it. And I don't know if you really ever get over it, but we just move through it, right? Some days we just move through the day. A good friend of mine says, I just chop wood and I just haul water some days. And what it means by that is you get up, you put your shoes on, you make breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you try to do something around the house. Maybe you watch a little Netflix, whatever it is, but you just get through the day and that's all you got some days. That's it. That's all you got. I really want to thank you for, for being here. You know, maybe you could share with our listeners some of the things that you do that are your, maybe your go-to get you through techniques and tools to, to help you on days where you're just feeling like you don't have it and you want to chop wood and just carry water and get through it. What are the things that you do? Well, besides the importance of self-care, as you said, um, I try and exercise. I try to get outside. I try to eat healthy. I try, um, um, I do get up and go to work every day. It gets a little bit easier to to move through, you know, your standard day. Um, it does. But one thing I I will have to say that my mantra to Alicia was to never give up. We wrote that on everything. I would text that to her when when we talked and she knew that I made her a sign, never give up. And so I think about how my beautiful daughter never gave up. Um, She actually did pass away four days after she was released from her sober living home. But she wasn't out on the street. She she put herself some in safe somewhere, but uh, was ready to go back into treatment the very next day. And she was waiting for her ride when she overdosed and passed away. And I thought that girl never gave up. She tried till the end. Um. So excuse me for getting emotional, but on those 
others. <laughs> yeah. This is absolutely acceptable. The tears are the healing, aren't they? The tears are the healing. So you talk a little bit about a Hope Recovery Community, which is located in Medina. And Hope Recovery Community is a recovery community organization that I I think you're involved in and you support. Uh, It's an independent nonprofit organization led and governed by the recovery community. And also online, I saw that the mission of Hope Recovery Community is dedicated to increasing sustained recovery by providing hope, support, advocacy, and resources to those impacted by addiction. That's me. That's me. You know, and I and I want you to just, I know we're on a Zoom call right now, but I want you to just be able to, to, to know that, you know, by you coming here on this podcast today, you're, you're going to be speaking to someone you might not ever know. You might never meet. You might never be aware that your words and the way you're expressing them with your emotions right now could be a turning point for somebody to help them. And, you know, even though we've, have suffered great loss in our lives. I believe personally, as long as we're standing, we're still fighting, right? Yep. We're still fighting and we're still hanging in there. We're still, if we can just to the last of our, our last breath, we can talk about there are people, there are institutions, there are places you can go to get help, to get the help you need. And people do recover. It does happen. It, it's still fresh. I feel it. And, yeah. and I want you to know that the listeners of, of Recovery Talks, the podcast, want to thank you for, for being here and being with us today. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything finally that you'd like to say, maybe to talk about, you know, what you're doing or what, what, your, what, your, what your mission is today. But why don't you share with our listeners a little bit what you're doing today? Well, what I do today is, as I said, um, I refuse to give up. Um, So if that means on a daily basis, forcing myself to go through um, the hurt and pain every day of the loss of her, I do. But on the flip side of that, because that was our mantra, I know that she would not want me to give up and become a shell of myself and not continue to be the supportive, loving person that I was to her, but also turn that around and support others. So as I mentioned before, I was with um, Family Matters, um, a support group for people that... um, have children or family members that suffer from substance abuse disorder. Um, I did that for several years. I now am joining um, a grief group that I do online every other Tuesday that I share with others across the uh, United States um, every other week. And that is supported and and, um, guided by two therapists. And it's solely for people that have lost a child to overdose. So sometimes we have to hone in on those support groups. So we really feel like those people understand exactly what we've gone through. So I'm um, doing that. And then I also have joined um, Grief Support, which is like a eight to 10 week um, program that you go through the stages of grief and work with a small group. So I'm doing that. But the most important thing um, I am doing in Alicia's honor is I volunteer at a Hope Recovery Community with people that are um, in long-term recovery. And um, I've started a little girls' night um, out there, and we've started a memorial fund for Alicia 
and uh, all the proceeds from that go back directly to uh, sober living homes in our community to help support the clients that are coming in on an ongoing basis. And that helps me um, by giving back. I just know all the years over a decade, as I said, that Alicia was helped in the numerous homes and sober living homes and the uh, organizations that helped her, that provided for her, that gave her um, food and clothing and, and everything else. And so I continue to do that in her honor. And that helps me knowing, and I know that she's smiling at me from above and say, way to go, mom. <laughs> so that's what keeps me going. For our listeners, if they'd like to reach Hope Recovery Community, they're located in 200 Highland Drive. That's in Medina, Ohio. A phone number is 330-952-0109. That's 330-952-0109. And they can be found online at Hope Recovery Community, all one word, hoperecoverycommunity.org. Uh, Athena, thank you so much for appearing on our podcast today. Thank you, Mike. And, you know, for our listeners out there, you know, this is where it gets real. We're talking about what really happens when addiction and substance use disorder affects families, affects us in our lives. And it takes a great deal of courage to be able to share your story. And personally, I just want to say thank you. And for all our, our listeners out there, you know, thank you for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes and more guests. And, you know, the one thing we can all do to keep us standing is to uh, stay connected. And I like to say, you know, it's that one technique, that one little tool in the toolbox of knowing when something's not feeling right is getting connected with other people just like you. That concept of peer support, finding others that are having the same lived experience that you do, it's a game changer. It was a paradigm paradigm shift for me. So for all our listeners out there, thank you for listening again. And until we have another episode, please stay standing and steady on.